Welcome to Hope Ahead, where we share stories of help and hope for people facing addiction and mental health challenges right here in our community. Hope Ahead is brought to you by the Virtue Center, and I'm your host, Carol Bauman. Welcome to Hope Ahead, but I know kind of like mutually, like he knows a lot of the same people that I do. Are you from Colorado? Yeah, so I grew up, um, I was born in Boulder, and then I grew up like right outside of Boulder, and then all of my like treatment and most of my sobriety took place um, in Colorado. So um, I was very involved with like the AA and CA community there, which is where our mutual friends, I think, come from. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it was really interesting. We had a mutual uh, Will Warner's, or not Warner, but um, Archer, Will Archer's girlfriend, what is her name? Anna. Anna. Yeah. (laughs) Messaged me and was like, hey, you need to link up with my friend Will and his wife. Anyways, it's a long story. Yeah. But, yeah, so... Um, do you want to, I guess, kind of share some of your background? So you mentioned you were born in Boulder. You kind of grew up, um, in the, I guess, the Denver Metro-ish area. Yeah, so I'll give, like, the, the, the bio, I guess. Um, yeah, I was born in Boulder. I'm the oldest of three. Um, and so I have two younger siblings and... My younger sister is three years younger, and then younger than that is my youngest sister, who's um, six years younger than me. Um, Yeah, I grew up in a town called Louisville, so it's, like, right outside of Boulder. Um, And my parents were together for most of my childhood. Um, My dad was an alcoholic. So he comes from like a long line of alcoholism. Um, and then my mom is the like classic, very emotional codependent kind of, uh, um, I don't want to say helicopter mom, but she's her and I like emotionally are very opposite. Um, so yeah, that was, that was kind of like just the, the basis. And I remember growing up, um, Like, I always, I think the mental health stuff kind of came first, you know? Like, I can remember we moved from Boulder proper um, to Louisville when I was, like, six. And so I changed schools, like, in the middle of the year. And I remember probably the first, like, two weeks after we moved, every day before school, I would have, like, looking back now, I realize it was, like, a panic attack. But I would just, like, freak out because I was probably afraid that I wouldn't make friends or just like afraid of a new environment. Um, but I can look back like as far as that and see the, the mental health problems like starting to materialize, you know? Um, and I don't know, I think it it was a mix, a mix of, uh, like nature and nurture of, uh, like being genetically predisposed to, to a lot of stuff. And then also just, um, like having, a dad that was drinking, um, even though I'll say it like, wasn't 
kind of your typical picture of like an alcoholic dad. Like I didn't see him drinking a lot. I just knew that he drank a lot. Right. You know? Uh, so were there, was there something going on at a younger age with dad and I guess the family dynamic and you're like, all right, alcohol is kind of a, an issue with him. So, um, it's interesting because I, I think I like recognized it cause like whenever he wasn't at work, he'd always have like a beer. Um, and I think especially like growing up in Boulder, uh, like the parents kind of, I don't want to say partied, but like we'd go to like events with um, a bunch of different families and like the parents would be like getting drunk and like having fun and the kids would be playing and having fun. Um, So I think that like with that, it was like, it was hard for the family to see that it was a problem for a while. Um, But it definitely like, as I started to get to the age where I was like more conscious, um, I could remember like, my dad would disappear, but he would just be in the garage and he'd just be like drinking in the garage, you know? Um, so he like, he was almost kind of a closeted drinker at home. Um, but my mom obviously knew. So I remember, I don't know what age it was, but probably like end of elementary school, they stopped like sleeping in the same bed, you know? Um, and so I think that probably had some effect. Um, but I knew that like, that alcohol was an issue. And it's like, it's kind of ironic that you asked that. Cause I remember when I was 12, my dad actually ended up going to treatment. And so I went up and I did the, like the family program. Yeah. And I remember them talking about like the, the genetic aspect of it. And, um, by that point, I think I had like smoked weed once, you know? Right. Um, but they were like, they talked about this genetic aspect to alcoholism. Um, and that was kind of, I think it was before like the more blanket term of substance abuse, um, like started getting used. So I remember in my head, I was like, like my mom sat me down and told me like, you know, it's more likely that you will have a problem with alcohol, um, than like the normal person. I remember in my head, I was like, all right, so like alcohol, I should avoid that. But I'd already like started doing some drugs and I was like, all right, well, like, drugs are different and will probably be all right, you know? Green light. Yeah. So I was like, (laughs) alcoholism can't do that, but like, we'll see what this is all about, you know? Um, so she actually sat you down and had that conversation with you. Yeah. And I think like, it's, um, it's definitely cool. Like looking back because my, my mom has had her own, um, like mental health struggles and has always been pretty open with me about it and like about her, cause she's always been on top of like going to therapy and like doing different, uh, like psychiatric things. So it's like, I've always had an open line of communication with her, whether I utilized it or not. Um, but I was like, I was well aware of, um, the fact that like mental health was important, you know, um, whether or not I actually did a whole lot of, uh, work on it on my own, but yeah, we always had like a pretty open line of communication, which was cool. So when did <clears throat> when did it kind of start to, I guess, get out of hand? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it started in middle school, right? Yeah. So I was like, it's you know, it's interesting because I'll like tell people because a lot of my friend group now is like 
quote unquote, like normies, like people that don't struggle themselves with, um, with addiction or alcoholism. And so I'll like mention that to them and they're like, wow, that's so young. Um, but I think in the group of people that I was in and just like, especially in kind of that area, like around Boulder and Denver, um, like it wasn't out of, it wasn't unheard of for like a, in middle school to start smoking weed. Um, but yeah, I was, I was one of those people where it like devolved very quickly. <laughs> um, so I started smoking weed in seventh grade and like cigarettes and stuff. And, um, I, the next year in eighth grade, I started, I like tried acid, um, and I tried ecstasy. And I remember like, as far as drugs go, like ecstasy was the first one where at 13 years old, I took it and I was like, this is like, this is it, you know? Like, I was like, this is like the feeling I've been looking for. Um, Cause parallel to that, like my dad had gone to treatment and he didn't stay sober. So him and my mom split. And so I was dealing with that at home and then started find, like experimenting with harder drugs. Um, but I remember like I, took ecstasy and probably then took it every weekend for like, like seven or eight months, you know? Um, did you have to try hard to cover that up? Did they know? No. So it was, uh, it wasn't that hard to cover up. I'm lucky that I have like really dark brown eyes. Um, so it's like the, the dilation of pupils was always like pretty easy for me to hide. Um, and I remember like my mom had asked me at some point, uh, probably like early eighth grade. And she was like, we were talking about, um, weed for some reason. She was like, have you tried it? And I was like, in my head, I was like, you will see what she says. And I was like, yeah. Um, and she, I think at the time was also a little more oblivious to like the, the fact that like drug addiction and alcoholism are the same thing. Um, so she was like, okay, well, you know, like be careful, like don't, do anything stupid. Don't get in the car with anyone that's been like drinking or using. Um, but I think she was just kind of more glad to have like an, what she thought was an honest line of communication about it. Um, but yeah, it was, so when it came time that I was doing these harder drugs, she would ask me like, we'd come home. Um, and there'd be times where she'd ask me like, are you guys like, are you on something? And I'd be like, yeah, we smoked some pot, you know? And, um, later she'd like scold me a little bit and then it was kind of just keep going, you know? Um, yeah, I was always, I'm very much like one of the, like my mode of manipulation when I was using was very much like half truths and like enough to keep me out of a lot of trouble, but to not be like outright lying, yeah. which was something I did. And years. downplay the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, if I let this little bit of truth out, um, then it's better than if I was just straight up lying. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a lot of omission and, yeah, like downplaying the truth or, or minimizing what was actually happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was a lot of my go-to as well. Is like, yeah, here's here's like a, a morsel of truth <laughs> right. so that, like, I don't feel terrible and, like, you can kind of believe what I'm saying, but it's not it's not the, the total, yeah. all of it. Right. Um, so I think that was like, that was probably my first like brush with feeling, 
I guess, addicted to something. Um, and even like with weed, it was once I started smoking it, I like wanted to smoke it as much as possible. Um, and that kind of went on throughout eighth grade. Um, and in the summer after eighth grade, my dad was climbing in El Dorado Canyon, which is like outside of Boulder. Um, and he fell and every pen came out on the way down. Um, and so like a month before I started high school, I found out that my dad was in a coma and then, um, we, he had signed a DNR. So a week later we pulled him off the ventilator and the, all the machines. And so that was kind of, I think that was the turning point, you know? Um, and that's not to say that I immediately got really bad, but that was, um, I don't want to say like the, the justification, but I like, I think I used it in my head as a justification for when things started getting bad. Um, because now I was like, all right, I'm 14. Uh, my dad just died in like a, a really tragic accident. And like, I'm the oldest kid. Um, my mom was grieving obviously and my siblings were still young. So I was like, it was like a lot of stuff that just kind of came onto me at once. And like the only kind of escape that I found was through different substances, you know? Um, in the trauma world, people might say that that incident with your dad, um, is like a marker, yes. you know, cause you're like, I don't know if that was the one thing that happened that, you know, made the switch. But I think it's, we could all agree that that would definitely be a marker. Yeah. So when you look back. Yeah. It's like, um, it's kind of like I've, cause I've been through, I've been in enough therapy and like treatment centers that the question has always been in my head, like, would my life have progressed substance wise the same if that right. hadn't happened? And it's like, I'm pretty sure based on my behavior before that, that it would have. But I think if anything, that may have been like a catalyst for how fast it happened, you know? Um, yeah, it was definitely, that was like the big kind of turning point. Yeah. yeah. I think that like, you know, we've talked about this in, <clears throat> in a lot of different episodes, but the connection between trauma and addiction, substance use disorder is undeniable, you know? And, um, so yeah, I mean, so where did, what was your, what was your thing? Like your go-to? Like drug of choice? Yeah. Um, I was an IV heroin addict. Okay. Yeah. And, um, I was also, at least for like the first big long stretch of addiction, like through high school, um, it was opiates and benzos every day basically. But I was like, those were the dailies. And then I was kind of just like a, a garbage can right. besides that. You so know? you said you got started kind of later with college. Did you graduate on time? <laughs> Barely. Somehow. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to picture that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, really like a condensed version of like how high school went is that my freshman year, I was just like um, smoking a lot of weed and like partying and going to like raves and stuff. Um, and like I was touching some harder drugs, but not like what I 
now view as like the, like the big three narcotics, you know, um, it was kind of just partying. And then my, the summer after my freshman year was when I was introduced to oxys. Um, cause I had like, I had done opiates before that, but it, uh, it didn't like give me the effect that I had been looking for. And really from like the second I did like my first pill of oxy, um, through probably like when I went to my first treatment center at 18, it was like opiates became a daily thing, you know? Um, and it was basically like sophomore year was opiates and benzos. Um, and I was prescribed benzos the whole time because, um, like I had anxiety, but looking back, it was probably very situational to like not only my dad dying, but also like the fact that I was using a bunch of drugs. Right. Um, and then Oxy's went to heroin eventually. And, um, I, yeah, I barely graduated. I like, I think when they told me at the end of the year, I'd missed like 150 classes my senior year. Um, <laughs> so they were probably like, we're just going to graduate uh, yeah. you and that was move ba- on. That was basically it. My, like my vice principal, um, handed me my cap and gown and just literally just shook her head. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she, she was like, yeah, I'm like, it's probably good that you're getting out of here. Um, so I'm trying to picture this because I think I have a very good understanding of like functioning alcoholics. Yeah. Um, but somewhere in here, you have to be a, a, a functioning a- drug addict too, right? Yeah. I just, does that look this much the same as a functioning alcoholic? I feel like, I mean, like, are you asking him or asking both of us? Or? I think kind of both, <laughs> like, from a clinical standpoint and, I mean, you've been on both sides I of mean, it. It depends on the definition of functioning. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because Well, like, you graduated high school, <laughs> yeah. so there was some percentage of functioning. But But also, you know, on the other side of that is, like, <laughs> nothing against you, yeah. but, like, it was almost like a pity graduation. Yeah. <laughs> like, it really was. Like, yeah. like he didn't put in the work on the senior year. Right. You yeah. Know what I mean, it was. It was like, well, all right, well, let's just get Will out of here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will. I, th- I think if you look at it from like a like a very macro scale, right? Um, like, there's probably a lot of functioning drug addicts. Um, and I know for myself, like especially with opiates, the big not selling point, but one of the things that like got me to continue to do them was the fact that like before I was like shooting drugs, I could do, um, an oxy and like still go about my day. Right. You know? Um, and so I think for a while I was a little more functional, but like I went from like a 3.8 GPA my freshman year Um, And that was, like, still partying and, like, smoking weed. But I went from that to, like, probably a 2.0 graduation. Um, So it's, like, I think, like, what Caleb is, to Caleb's point is, like, from a macro level, like, yeah, I think there's functioning addicts and alcoholics. But it's, like, once I looked at, like, once you look at, like, the, the micro of what was actually happening, it was, like, it wasn't very functional. Well, and I think that question for me comes from um, how people who 
this is not their world, how they perceive that world, and that a functioning alcoholic is somebody who is drinking throughout the day, but they're still going to work, they're still getting food on the table for the most part. Yes. But from what we see, whether it be in the movies, what have you, with drug addicts, you shoot up, you're out. Yeah. So... I don't know that I've ever seen an example, a fictional example of a functioning drug addict, if that makes sense. So I'm trying yeah. to kind of create that picture for our, our listeners yeah. of how you can be um, shooting up, doing these hardcore drugs and still functioning at some capacity. Because from my ignorance and what I see on the big screen is you just sleep a lot. <laughs> Well, I guess it depends on what you're Unless using. Unless it's cocaine or yeah. something like that. Right. But I think also, like, everybody's different, and everybody's at different stages of this. And I know, for me, like, even, like, like I was also an IV heroin uh, user. I started using it, like, 16. I got sober when I was 24. <clears throat> and um, I remember being, like, 22, and I was still able to hold you know go to work and do all this stuff i'd be sick as heck you know what i mean (laughs) but in my head it's like and it for those of you listening who don't want to know what i mean by that is i would be dope sick you know i would have be in full-blown withdrawal having to go to the bathroom every two minutes um sweating cold you know the whole nine yards <laughs> having whether it's going to the bathroom to throw up or the other stuff um, that is so miserable yeah, yeah and it's not fun but i was still going to work and i was also doing shady stuff to get money yeah. but i knew if i kept going to work that is money and i need mm-hmm. money to get well right um you know to get my fix well, to get um, your definition of well. Yeah, yeah, right. and because I was literally sick. Yeah. And, and um, <clears throat> even when I was living in Denver and it, before I got sober, um, you know, I didn't have, I was, I remember I was working at Taco Bell off of Colorado Boulevard <laughs> and by Wash Park and the graveyard shift and also going to day labor in the morning and I was so strung out, so strung out. But I was doing this because, and I was also doing shady stuff on the side to get money because this is all how I support my right. addiction. And it looks different for everyone, but I mean, like, just someone looking on, you know, the outside, look, oh, he's going to work, you know, he's doing this or he's doing that. But yeah, I was a mess. Yeah. <laughs> I was so miserable. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, because um, especially like back then, so I wasn't, um, I didn't start using IV until after my first treatment. Um, so at that point it was like, I didn't have track marks to hide or anything. I also was, until I graduated, was like, had no responsibilities. Right. So it's like I had a job delivering pizza um, which basically allowed me the freedom to do whatever I wanted while I was at work. And I was also doing illegal things besides that to like get money and hustling people and stuff. Um, and can we have an example of an illegal thing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of mine was just stealing from people. Um, 
And it was, I wasn't the type of person like, because I was so physically addicted to opiates, I was like, I rarely ever did anything that would get me in trouble with the police because, um, like, like robbing strangers, you know? Um, but I would rob the people that were like closest to me. Cause it's not illegal to rob people, you know? <laughs> yes. Right. That's right. the takeaway. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, well, you know, my, my, this person I've known for six years, isn't going to call the police on me. They're just going to be really mad at me. You know, it was right. like stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, once I started shooting drugs, it was like, I, I was unable to like get or hold a job. Um, and I, anytime I've relapsed since that, like, so that first spree, like through high school up to my first treatment center was like three or four years. Um, and anytime after that, I generally last like a couple months before my whole life is pretty much burning around me. You know, what, what makes those few months happen? Um, so I guess I'll talk, um, I'll talk mostly about like my most recent relapse in 2018. Um, cause that was the, that was probably the worst one, the longest one. And, um, like the, it was just the emotionally the hardest one, I think. So I had been sober from w when I got sober at 19 up until like right before my 24th birthday. Um, and in those years, like I did all, I did all the right things. So I like, basically I had spent a year in and out of treatment centers prior to that. And I would get like a couple months, um, I would relapse. Everything would burn down around me. I got an intervention. I went to a longer treatment center. Um, and I think that I just hadn't fully grasped the, like the idea that like once I do one, it's kind of all over for me. Um, so before I got sober that time, I basically had like driven three and a half hours each way to get heroin. Um, cause I was living up in, uh, Carbondale, which is in between like Glenwood Springs and Aspen in Colorado. Um, so I'd driven three and a half hours and my thought process was like, if I get it and do it like so far away from where I'm living, um, a, no one will know and be like, I won't be tempted to do it again, you know? Um, and the stars aligned such that like I got caught the day after, like had to pee in a cup for my sober house, um, and ended up basically like driving back to Denver, being strung out for like three days and going to treatment. Um, so that began that like four and a half years of sobriety and in probably for the first like three and a half or four years of that, I was like heavily involved in AA. Um, I had a really big circle of sober friends. Um, and I think I got to the point probably, yeah, probably like right around, my four year anniversary, um, where I had kind of like, I had made my life really busy. Um, but I wasn't really taking, like, I didn't have that piece of knowledge with me that like my life is busy because of like the fact that I'm sober and like, I have the opportunity to like have all these things to do because I'm sober. Um, and so after, yeah, probably like a couple months after I got four years, um, I had like disconnected pretty hard 
from a lot of my, uh, like support circle. Um, and cause I had started school at that engineering school. And so I was like, I gave myself an excuse as to like, why well, I didn't really need to like go to meetings or do any of the other things, um, that were important to me. And like fate would have it that I had probably like five or six friends that were, that I had met in sobriety, um, that had been sober, like just about as long as me. And they had started like either smoking weed or drinking. Um, and it seemed to be going well for them, you know? And, um, so after probably like three or four months of thinking about that, I was like, um, I went to my now wife, but then just girlfriend. And I was like, you know, we got sober at like, like 18, 19. Um, I was like, I feel like maybe like my brain chemistry has changed, you know, like I feel like I've learned enough about myself that I'm all grown up. Yeah. Like I'm an adult now, you know? (laughs) Um, I was like, maybe like I can just do these, like, I don't want to say surface level drugs, but like things that like I thought would be fine, like more socially acceptable, like smoke weed and drink. Um, and so, yeah, it was like March or so, March of 2018. Um, I went and I bought weed and I like smoked weed um, and like nothing crazy happened, you know? And I was like, all right, you know, like this is, this is fine. Um, and I think like an important part of this relapse story is that, so my now wife, um, she went to treatment one time and she got sober um, and she was sober basically up until then. And she found at the same time that I was trying this, that like she actually like can drink like a normal person, you know? Um, so she'll have like, I think the most I've ever seen her drink was like three beers, you know? Um, and it's, I think it was interesting for me because like, like I said, I smoked weed and nothing bad happened, but I also then like the, the gears in my head started turning where I was like, well, like this isn't really what I want, you know? Um, this is cool, but (laughs) yeah, it's like, (laughs) it's like, I always compare it to a, do you ever read that book? If you give a mouse a cookie? Yeah. So it's like, I always compare how my brain works around substances to that. It's like, if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want some milk. If you give him a a mouse some milk, he's going to want some of this and some of that. Um, And that's just like how my brain works around substances is like, it will take really any path it can to like, get me back to that, um, that state of oblivion that like, I think is what Cause you'd already met utopia. Yeah. Like I had already been to that. Um, I had, I already knew like what did the trick, you know? Um, and so concurrently to like her kind of figuring out her, um, relationship to relationship to substances as an adult. Um, I was also trying to do that, but on the surface I was trying to make it look like I was just smoking weed, maybe having a beer here and there. Um, when in reality I had started ordering like a ton of like benzodiazepines on the internet um, and was like very quickly went from like smoking some weed to eating like five to 10 Xanax bars a day, you know? Um, And, and you remember this? Some of it. (laughs) Yeah. I was, 
um, like coming back to that functional drug addict, um, I unfortunately am like fairly good at functioning on a bunch of depressants. Um, so, you know, I talk with my wife now and she's like looking back, like it all makes sense. Um, yeah, but it's like at the time it was like, it was very easy for me to just say like, Oh, like I, I smoked too much weed. Um, Oh, I like didn't sleep enough last night. Like blah, 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 blah. Um, and it went back to that, like lines in the sand that drug addicts and alcoholics always talk about is like, all right, I'm just going to smoke weed. And like, that's fine. And then you cross that line and it's all right. Well, as long as I don't do like, um, as long as I don't do schedule one narcotics, like I'm good, you know? (laughs) And then it's like, okay, well, now that I've done those, like, as long as I don't do them like three days in a row, I should be fine. Um, and it was really like from, I think from the day I smoked weed, it took like, it was like three months until I had ordered opiates and was like shooting a Dilaudid in my bathroom, you know? Um, and so that like, cause I wanted to touch on this earlier, like when we were talking about the functional and you're saying like, you know, we're talking about how if you can check a lot of boxes, like it kind of looks all right from the outside. Right. Um, and so that became my mode was like how many external like adult boxes can I check? Um, so that like, I don't get questioned so that, um, it doesn't look like I'm, you know, fully relapsed on heroin. Um, so I was like still going to school. I was still like attempting to do my like schoolwork, you know? Um, I was up until the last month, I was like still going to the gym. Um, so I would like go to the gym and then go home and shoot up, you know? Um, because I had like friends at the gym and my wife also lifts weights. So it was like, that was something that we shared. So it was like, if I stopped going to the gym suddenly, like something would look bad, you know? Um, I like made sure to eat enough so that I didn't lose a bunch of weight. Um, that all sounds to me sober exhausting. Yes. It was tiring. So isn't that kind of like a constant given, I don't know, like I'm at war with myself trying to figure this out because you're trying to check all the boxes so that you can do what you shouldn't, what you know you shouldn't be doing and you've worked really hard in the past to not do. And then to cover it up, you're really running yourself ragged to do that. Yeah. And I think that was, um, like that was probably the hardest part is that when I was younger, like in the times I had been using before, um, and this is something that I like, I've kind of talked about when I went back to treatment this mo that most recent time was that when I was younger, it was just like, Oh, like I'm just a junkie. And like, everyone kind of knows that, like, I obviously shouldn't be like shooting drugs in front of people, but everyone kind of like knows the status of me. So it's like, it's not that exhausting because I'm just, I have no appearances to keep. The expectation was low. Yeah. And so it's like, this time was so tiring because for, I guess like three and a half months, um, I was an active IV drug user and trying to also like be a decent boyfriend and be a decent student and be like a decent friend. Um, and it just like, didn't, didn't work out, you know, um, it was exhausting and like, it wasn't, that relapse wasn't physically the worst. Um, like when I, 
when I got sober the first time, I weighed 115 pounds. Um, so I was like, looking at you, I can't imagine that it was bad right now. Yeah, it was really bad. Um, and so like physically, like I, um, still looked kind of all right. Like I wasn't, um, like feeling the physical effects of like not eating, which is what would usually happen, you know, but like mentally and spiritually, it was one of the, like, that was probably the worst period that I've had, you know? Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it was obviously just hiding it from her, um, was really hard. Um, but I had also like, like I had, like I said, ordered, started ordering drugs online, um, which was not only like really dangerous, but also like very illegal, you know? Um, so there was actually a point where like I went to pick up a package and there was a federal postal agent and a DEA agent there waiting with my package in their hand. Um, <laughs> did you just keep walking? No. Cause they asked, I was like, Hey, I'm here to pick up a package. And I told them my name and then they're like, yeah, just, just around the corner. So I like came around the corner and they were there. Um, and luckily like they, cause I was using a, a website, like a Silk Road type website. Um, and so they wanted like login information. Um, but so I did that and then I had to go home and pretend like nothing had happened, you know? Um, and I think like one of the darkest things about that whole time is that before I'd started using opiates again, um, me and Rebecca, my wife had been together for, I think like five or six years at that point. We started dating in like 2014. Um, and so I decided like I wanted to propose to Rebecca. And so I had bought a ring like with my mom's help. Um, and it was getting made and, uh, I had like planned out, when I was going to propose to her. Um, and then I started using opiates. And so like concurrent to the excitement of like proposing to her, I was also like devolving very quickly. Um, so like a week before the proposal, I detoxed myself at home and just said I had the flu basically. Um, so that I would be like quote unquote clean for when I proposed. Um, and I remember thinking, I was like, all right, cool. Like, I'm like, I'm good. Like, I won't, I just like, won't do it again, you know? And within days I was doing it, um, and getting much worse. Uh, and it all kind of like, it all came to a head. Um, I woke up one morning and there was a needle and a shoestring on my bedside table, um, that I had not left on my bedside table. I had left them somewhere else. Um, and basically like a text from Rebecca saying like, we need to talk like you're fucked, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and because of how exhausting like those months were and that relapse was, it was like, obviously it sucked because I had like, I had once again caused pain to the people that I loved and that were closest to me. But it was like, it was also like a sigh of relief. Cause it was like, holy shit, like it, like it can finally be over if I want it to be over, you know? Um, but it was really just like, 
basically six months of living like a double life, you know, which I think anyone that has struggled with alcoholism or addiction in some aspect, like everyone kind of has their own experience of like having to live a double life um, in order to not only maintain appearances, but also like to maintain the level of inebriation that like we think we require while we're out there. There's so much that goes into making both sides of that double life work. Yeah. It's crazy. And lots of room for error. Yes. And I thought I was pretty good at it. Um, but I, luckily I wasn't as good as it, as I thought I was, you know? Um, and honestly, like luckily I made it alive. Um, cause I think, you know, it was stupid of me, but I like never had Narcan in the house because I didn't want anyone to like suspect that I was using. Um, and so I very luckily never was in a situation where I needed Narcan. I didn't, I didn't overdose during that relapse. Um, but it's like, it very, I very well could have. Um, and yeah, it's like, it was, it was just, it was brutal. Was that before or after you proposed? So that was, so I proposed um, in early November, and I had been using up to that point. I detoxed myself, mm-hmm. proposed, and then I basically used for like another month after that. Um, and then she found my paraphernalia, and that's right. when I got sober again. So did you go away for in treatment? Yes. Yeah, so long? She basically. Um, I was trying to convince her to let me detox at home because uh, I thought that sounded like a plausible, like, sane idea, you know. And she luckily was like, yeah, you, like, you can't be here. Um, and, like, you need to figure something out. Uh, so I went to detox. And while I was in detox, um, you know, my mom's dealt with this all before. This was, like, my, I think it was my fifth uh, treatment center. And it had been a while, but it was like, this is the fifth one I had been to, so she kind of knew the deal. So I went from that detox center to a 90-day program. Uh, it was back. It was the one that I went to previously that was up in the mountains. Um, and so I went there for 90 days and then uh, moved back down to Denver with Rebecca after that. Thank you for listening to Hope Ahead, where we share stories of help and hope for those facing addiction and mental health challenges right here in our community. You can find more information about the Virtue Center by visiting www.thevirtuecenter.org or we're on Instagram and Facebook.